Hello and welcome to the Write for Your Life podcast, a show about creative writing, copywriting, reading and the ever-changing publishing industry. Bandwidth for August has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5 and they really are marvellous. Check them out at cashfly.com, that's C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y, and let them know that you heard about them here on 5x5. I'm Ian Broom, author and podcaster, and other things too, and uh, with me... And I'm Donna. No, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here too. Don't forget about me. Well, we've talked over each other four times already in... (laughs) I'm sorry, it said it's, you were so professional as well to start with. Hello, everyone. I'm, do I need to say now that I'm Donna Sorensen? I think you just did. I am, yeah. I'm also uh, all those things you said you were. Indeed. So there's not, I mean, we, we've started uh, doing sponsors, which is why um, uh, through 5x5, five five, which is fantastic, which is why you heard the intro there for the second time. I think we might need to... And I'm trying to do that in a very, you know, a very professional way because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm. It's important, and I want to do it properly. But the transition from uh, from that to into uh, the smooth bit into us just saying, I think it's because it's suddenly about us after that. I think that that's my problem. Sorry, but then I have to start talking about me because you started saying to everybody what it was you did, and then I was like, oh, I don't really know what what to say about me. But this is what I mean. I, I just I just said that. I hadn't thought about that. I just said it. And as soon as I said it, I thought, well, that's going to throw Donna. <laughs> totally. Oh, dear. Well, I am, yeah. I'm a writer and I'm a poet and I'm a copywriter and I'm very delighted to be here. Hello, everybody. Hello, indeed. Today we are going to be talking about, well, a few things. Um, we have a main topic, which I have come up with sort of last minute, but I think it's an interesting one and I'd like to see where our conversation goes. So the main topic later is going to be about um, foreshadowing. I think that's what most of the conversation will be about, sort of the literary technique of foreshadowing, which is um, where you kind of tell the reader or the viewer in some cases, because films and TV shows do this, where you kind of say, well, this is going to happen later on, later on, and or you say, well, something exciting is going to happen later on. You kind of allude to what's coming, and that gets people excited, and they want to read more and watch more. A little bit like what you've just done now for our podcast. It's exactly like that. Mm. Fantastic. But uh, before all that, um, we're going to start with, in uh, kind of in inverted commas, listener, listener's question. Oh, hang on a minute. Listener's question. So we didn't have a listener's question last week because um, uh, we didn't get any because I didn't really ask. I think I asked, but in a kind of oh, a, a, a ridiculous time. Ian, Ian, you're going to say, you could, we did get one. This is what you're getting at here. We did get one. Yeah. You just didn't want to use it because it was your brother. Yes. <laughs> yes. But uh, as we, as I haven't asked for listeners' questions at all this week, um, uh, we're actually going to use his question. <laughs> well, it's not just because of that. It actually happens that we are going to talk about something afterwards, something which is in the news this week, um, which directly relates to your brother's question last week. So it it works out perfectly. I'll um, I'll just find the listeners' question from a certain Craig Broom last week. Um, who does take the mickey out of you? I love, it's, it's hilarious on, on Twitter. You should go on and see Ian and Craig and their little brotherly love conversations that they have on Twitter. Um, Craig tweeted, 
me just find it here. He said, what about on paper, PC or typewriter? And there was no question mark after it, but we knew it was a question. And you actually said that's actually a half decent question about your medium, what you would write on. And the reason that we've raised this question this week is because you may have seen in the news that Tom Hanks has just released an app that he's co-created, which is a typewriter. And that's gone straight to the top of the app chart, hasn't it? The fact that you, that you just just described that in the way that you did, I think, says a lot. You said that that uh, he's released co co released an app that is a typewriter, and really, that is it. There is very <laughs> there is there is no, as far as I can tell, um, I haven't downloaded it, but as far as I can tell, there is no other feature to it, um, apart from I guess the ability to write. Uh, there's no other feature to it um, than the screen looks a bit like a typewriter. And it makes the sound. And it makes the, I mean, it makes the sound of a typewriter as well. Clack, clack, clack. And they've worked on the fonts to look exactly like vintage fonts. Does it look a bit like Courier New, which is on everyone's computer? <laughs> Potentially. Well, this is funny because when Craig said that last week, I just said, well, yeah, computer, obviously. I mean, sometimes I write on paper, but I never write on a typewriter. Don't be ridiculous. Um, and then... And then when I saw this this week and I thought, oh, Tom, why on earth has he released a, a typewriter app and started to look into it a bit more? I suddenly thought, oh, cool, am I missing out on something? Should I actually be going, you know, trying to, to recreate those days and the feel and the smell and the, the physicality of writing on a typewriter? Is that what I need to get me back into writing? Not that I'm out of writing. I just haven't got, you know lots down recently but um but yeah but you, uh, you know that i own a typewriter right i don't believe i've ever seen you tapping away on it but i probably knew you had it tucked away somewhere i've got do a, you use it to write on i've got this gorgeous um it was a gift from my wife it's a gorgeous uh typewriter it's kind of in uh, orange it's like a retro style typewriter i'm not quite sure what kind of time it would have been made but it's uh I, I love it it's fantastic and it's um it's in a corner in the cellar just sat there doing nothing oh gathering dust when was the last time you wrote something on it um i've never written anything on it because the ribbon was dry and i couldn't work out i couldn't work out how to buy a new ribbon <laughs> oh well tom hanks can help you with that because i read his article last year in the new york times yes because you may not have realised, Ian, but he is a collector of vintage typewriters. That is why he is interested in this app, amongst other things. And he says that he gets his ribbons off eBay. I did wonder, but I did. I just didn't know. I didn't know really know which ones to get. Ah. Oh. So I gave up. And also, I think the reason I, uh, you may have sensed in the, the the kind of the tone of my voice that I'm a bit sceptical about this. I'm sceptical about the app. First of all, I'm sceptical sceptical about the app because. Fine, it's free. People aren't paying for this, so that's okay. But it's I, I find it a bit frustrating that because um, you know I'm I've got half a foot in the in the world of technology, and I'm interested in technology, and and I love the fact that there are so many fantastic writing apps available for the iPad and for the iPhone, and and some of them are really innovative, and they they hook up with things like Dropbox, and which allows you to kind of basically 
work on the same document wherever you are. I've talked about this before. It's what I do. I mean, I, I use my iPad to write um, fiction or to write blog posts or show notes or whatever it might be. It's really, really useful. And this has been made possible by these you know, really fantastic developers thinking really innovatively about how to make the kind of mobile writing experience really valuable and rewarding and not that far off what it would be like writing on a laptop or a desktop computer. So I find it a bit frustrating that not only has Tom Hanks released an app and it's gone to the top of the app, uh, top of the app store charts, which you would expect because he can just say, look, I've got this thing on Twitter and everyone will go to it. But also the fact that it's been covered by the mainstream media um, again, which I suppose I should have expected, but I'm looking here at an article in Time magazine, which is about Tom Hanks's free app that looks a bit like a typewriter going to the top of the App Store charts. And do you know what I say, Donna? What do you say? I say Hanks, but no Hanks. Oh my goodness, that is amazing. Well, I know it's going to be hard to, to top that, <laughs> but I want to ask you something. Go for it. Would you be equally as incensed if it was a free typewriter app created, co-created, I should say, by, um, say, for example, Margaret Atwood or Salman Rushdie? Yes, I think so. I, I think so. I mean, it's, I'm not, I'm not like massively outraged or anything, but it's, I, I, I just find it a bit frustrating that. Um, I mean, I, just, I suppose it's not a story, is it, for Time magazine if a small software development house releases um, a, a really effective app. <laughs> it's not really the same thing. I get it. No. I, um, no. I, I realise I am kind of uh, living in some sort of fantasy world, ironically. But I, we, you know, we should actually look a bit more into uh, the guys that have co-created this with Tom Hanks because they, if if they hadn't done it with Tom Hanks and they'd released it as another typewriter app, would you be defending them and saying, oh, look, this, this, this company, you know, they've got this great app and, and, you know, they're not the new typewriter app by um, Kim but, Kardashian or whatever. But is it, but, a, is it a great, is it a great app? Maybe I should have actually but this downloaded is, it. Yeah. I think we should try it first. Cause I think the thing is, is that sadly when Tom Hanks, you know, Mr. Nice guy, Mr. Have a go, everything, having his name on it is, is, obviously a massive coup for this company but when I looked into Tom Hanks a little bit I thought hang on a minute I'm being a bit hard on Tom Hanks here because he is actually a writer and much more than I probably could say I am yeah no I'm not I'm not I'm not it's nothing to do with Tom Hanks the personality (laughs) you've got nothing against Tom Hanks you just want to say that right now yeah I've got nothing against uh but isn't it reality isn't it reality that you know in in a massively crowded marketplace especially with apps that you know if you can get somebody to put their name to it, then good on you. Yeah, I suppose so. But I mean, I mean, I, I suppose so. The way I, I mean, just looking at the the screenshots of it, I mean, it's not it's not very good. I can see it's not very good. It's not not that it's not very good. It, it's not very practical as a as a writing uh, uh, app. Because I'm just even looking at that screenshot. It is like a typewriter, so you only see a very thin piece of paper when you're typing the first line. This is what the screenshot is on Time magazine. That's not how we write now. That's not what we do. That's We want to see all of our page. I mean, even any writing app, you know, you want to see the majority. You want to see what you're writing. You know, we, we would all still be using typewriters if, there was a, if it was the best way of doing things. And creating a typewriter, 
you know, these are just graphics. It's just a picture of a typewriter, Donna. That is all it is. <laughs> I know, but you know, it's it's a gimmick. It's a little. Do you know what it is? It's just a game. It's a flappy birds. That's all it is. And you know what? If it gets young youngsters, <laughs> as we call them, <laughs> um, interested in in putting down words on 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 the screen or whatever, then great. You know, for me, it hasn't made me want to go out and get this app but it has made me actually wonder whether i might like to have a go on a typewriter again because and that's that's just from looking more into the fact that he he loves typewriters so much yes i i mean that's just uh i don't think that there is going to be a new generation of writers born on the back of tom hanks's <laughs> graphic graphic of a, a typewriter well ian all of those jazzy apps that you were talking about previously that you're incensed about the fact that they are not getting as much attention i i wasn't going to look at them and i think you know it's not that i didn't want to it's just it's just that you need something shoved in front of your face again i'm just saying shove it in my face and i'll have a look at it i go and find go and look up byword editorial for the iPad. you've just said you've just you've just told me to go and do something on my own this is what i'm saying people just don't do that are you are you honestly saying what, <laughs> you're honestly saying that, that that me telling you now recommending to you as a friend and a podcasting partner <laughs> to go and try out an app is less is there's less of an incentive you're less likely to do it than you are if Tom Hanks's typewriting app is in the mainstream news because that that goes against everything that anyone says you know the word of mouth that's the best way book see, recommendations i can't answer this question now because you've, you've made it impossible for me to answer because you said are you saying this because if you are you're a ridiculous idiot <laughs> so i'm just gonna say i, I admit that that was implied the answer to my your question <laughs> no but you know what I, mean? I was being extreme i'm saying in general you know people are not going to go out and search for these things necessarily unless they are looking for something to write on I, I guess so. Anyway, neither of us is going to try it, are we? But we've managed to to, to talk about it quite, quite far more far more than we expected. Absolutely, well, very interesting. Anyway, I think indeed. Tell us about. And, uh, can I just tell you one other thing? Oh yes, that this yeah. this is I I go down the rabbit hole of these things, you know, and found out that Tom Hanks' daughter is a writer, and his brother, I believe. It's interesting, isn't it? What? Well, you you are from a, a dynasty of writers yourself. Oh well, I guess yeah. So we were going to talk about a couple of other things. Um, I just wanted to well, I briefly wanted to mention this uh, article in the Guardian, which is about um, Wattpad, which we talked about a few weeks ago, um, and it's kind of confirming what I'd already kind of could tell just from spending some time on Wattpad. Um, the article is uh, what Wattpad has done for girls, um, and it's about the fact that so many uh, teenage girls, or and perhaps even younger, I'm not sure, they just love Wattpad, and they love reading on Wattpad, and they love writing on Wattpad. Um, and um, it, there was, I mean, one of the things I thought was, where are all the boys? But then I suppose, I don't know, maybe they are, maybe it's not for them, maybe... Maybe if they're given a mobile phone or they have an iPad, maybe they prefer to play Minecraft or something like that. Um, but where are all the boys? It was one of the first things I, I thought, and it seems like 
It seems like uh, there shouldn't be any reason why boys aren't using Wattpad in the same way that girls are using Wattpad. I should probably explain very briefly if people don't know what Wattpad is. It's a place, it's uh, very hard to describe, but it's kind of um, a platform where people can read um, episodic stories, novels, um, you know, complete novels in, uh, in like a chapter a week or something like that. But also people can upload their own. So we have lots of writers um self-published writers effectively they can self-publish through through wattpad they don't get paid but um they can do that and uh, and it's huge it's taken off it's absolutely massive but particularly with teenagers and particularly with teenage girls um there was one particular thing that i thought was interesting in this article apart from where where are all the boys to which i have no answer um i wondered if it was because of the type of literature um that they're reading on Wattpad or that they can get on Wattpad or that they can write themselves on Wattpad is very closely related to the kind of things that they're into in other areas of uh, you know modern culture so to speak such as well I think I mentioned this when we talked about it before um, and let me just get Wattpad up um, the categories in Wattpad for example are slightly odd so for example over the last oh few... yeah I, I think we mentioned it before yeah so over the last few years we've had uh, twilight and we've had um uh what's the other one twilight and the other one uh catching for oh what's it yeah hunger games yeah um <laughs> um and 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 obviously they've got huge teen market there's a lot of teenagers read that especially girls read those books i think especially twilight probably and if you look at the um, the categories in Wattpad that teenagers are going and looking for and and finding, and these are not kind of tags; these are not user generated. These are the these are the actual um, categories that Wattpad, Wattpad provides. So you have things like romance, fantasy, science fiction, the usual stuff, but you also have things like um, uh, werewolf um, and uh, spiritual vampire um, action. Because action, I, I, at first I just sort of looked straight over that. But then I thought, action, that's normally a category you would put with a film. I don't think you... I don't know if Amazon have an action category for books. I don't know. But anyway, I wondered. I just wondered, and I put this to you as someone who has previously been a teenage girl, um, whether you think... <laughs> <laughs> I think, is that accurate? I was like, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, I, I was getting ready to say that, but yes, I, I was, actually. It's true. Um, and I, I just wondered whether part of the reason that Wattpad has taken off is because with young girls is because they can read and write fiction that is much more closely related to the things that they're interested in in culture generally as opposed to stuff for example on the national curriculum here in the UK what they would what they would read in school hmm I'm not sure about that I think it's just and I'm my, I don't know this for sure, obviously, but my gut reaction is that it's just the fact that there's way more teenage girls and young girls that are reading books than boys. So picking up a reading app or an app with stories on, there's going to be more girls do that than boys, just because that's the way it is. More books are bought by girls than boys, aren't they? I think so. I don't have the stats to hand, but I would imagine that's probably true. Um I'm pretty sure that's why. Because, I mean, I, when I was a teenage girl back in the day, I wasn't um, reading vampire and, and werewolf books, you know? What were you reading? Um, I was reading, okay, well, I was reading books, the same kind of books that I'm reading now. 
I don't mean to sound, you know, <laughs> blow my own trumpet, but um, I've been reading since I was four. I got through a lot of um, rubbish, I'm pretty sure, in the first few years, but I don't know. I, I look back and I don't think I was reading. I was reading kind of girly things early on, but by the time I was a teenager, it was just all about reading normal books. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I was, I was, I was kind of the same. I was obsessed with obsessed with Roald Dahl for for years. Do you remember when you were four years old and there was a book that everyone had to read um, in school, and it was called "Look" with an exclamation yes. mark? Do you remember yeah. that book? Yeah, amazing. And um, and you'd open the first page, and there would be a picture. I don't know. I'm making this up slightly, but from memory, there'd be a picture of an animal or something or whatever <laughs> it might be. And then on one page, there would be "Look." With an exclamation mark, and I remember I was I, I was a fairly advanced reader uh, f- for my age way back when, and um, I remember looking at that and going, you know, and, and looking. I remember thinking, look, okay, look, yeah, I, I understand. I understand what it says. I can I can read it out loud, and I understand what it means. Let's go to <laughs> let's go to the next page, and um, and go to the next page, and there would perhaps be a picture of a cat. I don't know something like that, and then on the other side of the page, it would be. Look, with an exclamation mark. And I remember very clearly thinking, uh, just sort of looking up, I imagine, I'm probably, uh, let's imagine this is true. I remember looking up at my teacher and kind of thinking, uh, is it all like this? (laughs) Oh, dear, yeah. And uh, and it was. (laughs) I, I, yeah, I think recently I saw one of those early reader books from, from back in the day and just the wave of nostalgia, it was amazing. I just... I wanted to like get the whole, you remember there was like a whole series of them probably was like, listen or whatever. Um, and just to get hold of them and have them because it just reminded me so much of, of, you know, of wonder and of looking at the world with wonder. And did you, uh, did you go to the library? Were you like a, a library member? Was that how you got your books? When yeah, you we had the, tra- the what do you call it? The mobile library. I quite like the we- sound of the travelling library as well, which I think <laughs> is what you're about to say. Not like it just doesn't, it just doesn't service, it doesn't just service your kind of local village. It kind of tra- travels the country and you'll see you next year. Yeah, Howl's Moving Library. It, yeah, that was, I remember it so clearly when it came to our village out in the middle of nowhere. And it was, it was it smelt a bit funny. I remember that, but yeah, I don't know whether you still get mobile libraries. You in do. The UK. You, abs- you absolutely get mobile libraries still. Yeah, yeah. Great. I'm not sure you get them here in, in Denmark. Particularly, particularly good for um, old people. Hmm. I think. I think. I think a lot of the elderly community uh, use it. I know that my granddad used to get books from the mobile library. Ah, oh, cool. Um. Brilliant. Well, I think, I think we've covered, <laughs> covered the Wattpad thing. I was just reading earlier about the fact that Margaret Atwood is a great supporter of it. Strange that Margaret Atwood has just uh, popped up again, but um, and she's been criticised apparently for supporting it because she should be endorsing literature with a capital L. Yeah, I read that line as well. She that and it was her that was that was I think that was her line. She was saying people yeah. think I should be supporting literature literature with a capital L, but that's what I. I I, I do like Margaret Atwood. She's um, she was her book Cat's Eye was the book that made me want to be a writer. I loved it. I still love it. I'm sure if I was to go back and read it, and um, and uh, and you know, I I try to be like her. I think it's easier to be like her when you are her. 
suppose. Uh, she might not agree. <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> existential issue she has. But, but yeah, it, do, do you know that she's here right now? Well, she's in this she, room with me. Yeah, what's she up to? <laughs> Was she playing she's, the xylophone? Yeah, I've been teaching her all day. She is. Um, she's here in Copenhagen for a literature festival. Um, so I'm going to try and pop along um, on Friday to listen to her being interviewed. You should. I, I, she's a good uh, talker as well. She's very good at talking about writing. Mm, yeah, be great. Yeah, but I, but I, I I admire the way that she kind of doesn't just talk about literature with a capital L. It's why that it's yeah. why I'm I'm I think I'm I think I'm uh, I think I express this on the podcast and my various online areas. But I you know I'm quite supportive of self publishing because a lot of traditionally published authors aren't. It's not that they're not they're not not that they're unsupportive, but it's more like you know there's a separation. It's kind of well there's there's them and us. And, uh, you know, I used to be like that, really, because it was a bit more like that. But I think that I have tried to be much more open about things uh, in the last three or four years and just kind of roll with whatever's going on in the industry, which I think is what all writers need to do. It's why I've, you know, been thinking about using Patreon for this for this thing that I'm, uh, I still haven't put out there. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. Shall I briefly mention the the last little thing I was looking at this week in the news um, about Facebook? Let's do it. It's always good to talk about Facebook. <laughs> yes. Well, um, via Facebook, somebody I know posted an article um, called I Quit Liking Things on Facebook for Two Weeks. Here's how it changed my view of humanity. And it was on medium.com. Um, we'll put it in the show notes, which are, will be on 5by5.tv slash WFYL slash 124. Um, and this was written by somebody called Elan Morgan. And she had written it in response to a Wired article that she'd seen, uh, which came out a little bit before that, which was called, I liked everything I saw on Facebook for two days and here's what it did to me. So I, I, I read them both. What happened when you liked everything and when you didn't like anything? Um, and the reason that I did that was because I'd started to notice recently that obviously we know that we, we don't see uh, f- posts coming in from everybody we know on Facebook. We know that. And it's very interesting that we're getting sponsored feeds through and have sponsored posts rather and to see what Facebook decides you want to see in that respect. But what I suddenly realized was that I think I've been holding back liking quite a lot of things that I don't want Facebook to think I like. And as a result, I seem to only have liked writing-related posts and posts on writing. So I just realised the other day after I read these two things, my God, my Facebook feed is just literally other writers I know with posts about writing, which are making me feel guilty for not trawling the internet for articles on writing or reading all these articles on writing or having enough time to be completely engrossed in the world of writing. And it's like I've created this this perpetual torture world for myself, like a guilt screen on Facebook that I just don't want to be on anymore. It's a bit of a rant, wasn't it? It's a bit of a rant, but it's a, I think it's all fair enough. I mean, we, we've, uh, you know, if you listen regularly, we all know that a few episodes ago we talked about updating a Write for Your Life uh, uh, Facebook um, page and a few of you and you know, a good few of you um, signed up to that and liked it and all that kind of thing but uh, we we immediately found that we that we shared stuff and no one was 
seeing it and it wasn't just it's not just the fact that no one was interested because you know there are around 500 people that are that are, that are signed up to that or you know they like it so theoretically 500 people could um some might argue should because they've liked it um see that in their feed we were we found that very few people are actually getting to see that so facebook literally aren't showing people those updates um mm. and it might be because the 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 page was dormant for a long time because it used to be um uh, used to be my my old right for your life page back back when i was uh, had right for your life the blog so maybe that's why um but that is we we just thought well what we we think well what's the point <laughs> that's kind of that's the way we've thought about it we kind of thought but well, why would we update this why would people be hoodwinked into liking it and signing up to something if they are literally not being shown the things that we are posting for them so yeah absolutely it's almost like it would be easier to to close the page and start again and ask everybody just to re-like it so that it started with a clean sheet it's almost like it's got a bad credit rating yes that's a very good way of putting it. And, and that's entirely decided by Facebook. And surely that's not the way that a, a social network should work. And the, the fact that Facebook has become such a so heavily curated, effectively by robots and uh, uh, Wizdroids, that... <laughs> Wizbots. Please, can we call them Wizbots? We can call them Wizbots. Um, so the fact that Facebook is kind of self-policing everything by, uh, by Wizbots... Um, is you know, it's just a bit wrong. I think I just, I just, uh, and everyone knows this is happening. But yeah, yeah. but least everybody knows. But I, the, my epiphany this week was that it's quite subtle when the, your own actions. I mean, I knew that I was affecting my own newsfeed, but I didn't realise I was having such a negative effect on myself by doing it. And the the outcome of these two articles, I should just say, the first one, um, I quit liking things on Facebook. Um, in that little experiment, uh, the writer said that it was it was wonderful. It was like completely different feed that she had afterwards where, you know, if she liked something with a cat on it that a friend had put up, you know, she in the past she would have got nonsense about cats or things about saving cats or cats being tortured or, or like all sorts of things that she just, you know, were just awful or she didn't want to see were coming through. And by not liking anything you almost like scale everything back to just your, just you and your friends, a few little things here and there that you can comment on and just a much more manageable and less or more personal world to be involved in online. Um, because I, I believe if you comment, Facebook doesn't um, take note of that in the same way. No, the bots are not looking at comments. And it's worth saying that the first article that she was replying to um, mm. Uh, where the guy had liked everything, the result of that was all he ended up seeing was sponsored posts. It was like advert after advert after advert. Yeah. And and so Facebook had just completely hammered him with lots of adverts. It's and all... very extreme adverts as well, like that you you got labelled as being, you know, your political views, your, your swing was basically decided upon after maybe two or three clicks of the like button. And then everything got more and more extreme after that. Yeah. Speaking mm. of adverts, Donna... Oh, yes. Speaking of adverts, I'd like to take the opportunity now to talk to you about Squarespace. That was smooth, wasn't it? It was very smooth. Tell me more about Squarespace. Well, this episode of the Right for Your Life podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, which is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio and online store. 
For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code WRITE. That's W-R-I-T-E, of course. Um, and uh, I should tell you now that I, I'm currently updating my own website. I think last week when I talked about Squarespace, I said that I was um, uh, creating a new website for my freelance business, which I, you know, I started in April, as a lot of people know. Um, and I things have happened, and I think I'm going to com- conglomerate that. That's not the right phrase. I'm going to congeal the two things. So my current site, ianbroom.com, and my freelance site, everything's going to be uh, one, I think. And I'm using Squarespace at it because um, um, I, I, as I said last week, I just want to. I want something that's easy to use that can do everything I want that is future proof and uh, and Squarespace is all those things um, so yeah I'm looking forward to it I'm actually quite enjoying building the site which is uh, not something that I can say with other platforms I've used mention no names anyway Squarespace makes it simple and easy to create a beautiful design for your custom website using a drag and drop interface they also make it easy to get help with 24-7 support through live chat and email Located in New York City, Dublin and Portland, you can reach Squarespace support anytime you need it, no matter where you are in the world. Plans start at just $8 a month and include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Templates include responsive design and every site comes with an online store. Get started with a free trial, no credit card required and start building your website today. When you sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code Write, that's W-R-I-T-E, to get 10% off and to show your support for Write for Your Life. Big thank you to Squarespace for their continued support of 5x5 and, of course, for to us. <laughs> Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. It's a good strapline, isn't it, as well? It's fantastic. Very good. good. They're, they're good with the old copywriting Squarespace. I've noticed, I've listened to podcasts for uh, a number of years, so I've... I'm really, uh, I really interested in the way that kind of, uh, well, I'm, just because I'm a copywriter, interested in kind of marketing copy and straplines. I was writing a strapline just today, and um, and they're not easy. It's not easy to come up with um, uh, straplines or taglines. Is that something you do in your in your copywriting job at Visit Denmark? Um, yeah, I mean, I do quite a lot of campaign work for our campaigns and with external partners and stuff so yeah i know, I know exactly what you mean it's Den- denmark um, denmark it, it's it's not <laughs> as expensive as you think hey in brackets it's, it sort of is it is <laughs> denmark is expensive but you're worth it how about that one that's really good i, I think you'd be all right with that <laughs> um yeah, I think what's really hard though is when you've got a really busy job around just in general, a copywriting job that also, I mean, doing social media at the same time and everything, just having a little bit of space to get a little bit deeper in and think creatively about stuff like, you know, strap lines. That's what I struggle with. I need, I, we also have an open office, I should say. Have you ever worked in an open plan office? I primarily worked, I've only worked in an open plan office. It's quite, quite interesting. I mean, no, no walls. There are no walls. That is the definition of an open plan office. <laughs> no, but I should just verify that in my situation, there were no walls, even on the outside of the building. <laughs> no, just kidding. Anyway. Just, that, can I just say that? That was a tremendous joke. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I thought so, because I laughed. You did. Um, 
do you know what, Ian? While we were while we've been talking, we got a question over Twitter about a poem that I mentioned a few weeks ago that we forgot to put in the show notes. It was a poem that was written in dialect. I'm just going to say that I'm going to find it and we'll put it in this week's show notes. Do you remember we talked about that? Uh, I do remember we talked about that, and I, I'm going to apologise right here and now for not putting that in the show notes. It's just terrible. I do apologise, and thank you for your tweets, Sandra P. Ramirez. Right, great. Hey, have we got even time to talk about our main topic this hey, week? Hey, we've got loads of time to talk about it. Ace. So I want to talk about... Um, well, the first thing I wrote down in my notes was the art of saying just enough, or the importance of what is not said, which is not a very elegant sentence, but... It's, <laughs> great way to start <laughs> the importance of how you say what you want to say <laughs> but it's just i've i've um i've been uh very much like macaulay Culkin this week i've been entirely home alone Ooh. oh okay right yeah um yeah i've been sort of hitting i've had sort of tired i'm waiting for my wife to come back i've, I've already kind of I've got a piece of rope with an iron attached to it for when she comes up the stairs oh well, well you do not need to carry i think we should just leave that there <laughs> <laughs> i've said too much yeah yeah um, so, uh, so yes, I've been using this time to, uh, to work on the novel and, um, and I'm using a technique in the novel, which I have used before. I did use it at the start of novel one, the act of foreshadowing. So I kind of, uh, in preparing for all the things I'm about to say, I kind of thought, well, I didn't really do that in the first, my first book. And then I realized actually the first chapter is basically the, the last chapter in the, in the first book, but it's very vague and it, it doesn't foreshadow. It foreshadows a kind of a scene that will come back up again, but it doesn't foreshadow in the way that, um, 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 I think, uh, well, the way that I'm writing the second novel, but the way that I think most people think of foreshadowing, think of foreshadowing, which is where you effectively say, Whoa, hey, guess what you've got to look forward to? And then people, you either then say, this is what's going to happen, or you kind of just sort of give glimpses of what might happen so that people go, oh, now I really want to know what's going to happen later on in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but before I come on to kind of foreshadowing in a bit more detail, the reason I, I, I started this was kind of the art of just saying, uh, of saying just enough. And and I guess it's I guess it's the whole kind of old, the old... Uh, show show don't tell kind of piece of writing advice Mm. um but how you find that line how you know what is just enough is very tricky a lot of the Mm. a lot of the feedback i've had from my first novel has been it's been good and people have liked it but even the people that have liked it even very often will come to me and say right i've got questions i want to know what happened here um what happened at the end did i think this happens at the end but but did it happen at the end and and that's kind of the response that I wanted because I just wanted to I wanted to just say enough that says look here's this story here are these people this is the part of their life that I can show you that I want to show you through the eyes of a first person narrator in my case um, but this is all you're getting so I hope that this is enough to keep you interested and to keep you and to keep you reading you know when you pick up the book but I don't I, I've you know it's a deliberate choice by the writer to not say any more than you know what what is said um but that's a really difficult balance to to um uh, to find it's a difficult line to tread and it's especially because people are desperate to know and to, almost to be told they know that they they should work it out for themselves but there is nothing like just having that closure absolutely and my i've got a really there's lots of examples of this in 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 films and uh, tv shows 
my, one of my favourite films. I might even say it's my favourite film, but I've not seen it for a while, so I may not. I loved Lost in Translation. Are you a Lost in Translation fan? Massive one. I, I, I did my own little Lost in Translation odyssey in, in, in Tokyo. Well, there you go. Um, what did they say at the end? So Lost in Translation, Bill Murray, yeah. Scarlett Johansson, really quiet subtle film and they they strike up this um this relationship which is you know it's not a romantic relationship but sometimes you think it could be or it might have been and there is you know it's kind of the absolute the entire film is really a really brilliant example of of uh just saying enough or the or the importance of what is not said so it's the things that are not said in London tra- lost in translation that make it a brilliant film it's the stuff that you don't know it's the it's the kind of the, the it's kind of the scenes that weren't filmed the bits where the characters must have gone off and done something but you're not quite sure what happened or how or when and then of course the payoff the great sort of final scene in lost in translation where Bill Murray runs back to find Scarlett Johansson because he, he he they don't they they kind of leave on bad terms and he wants to go back and just put things right, and you think this is it he's going to go back to her, and of course if this was starring Tom Cruise and he was wearing a helmet and maybe uh, maybe some overalls of some kind, um, he no would, one would watch it, so it wouldn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> he would he would drive up right next to Scarlett Johansson. He would run into the middle of the square and 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 the microphone would be right in his face and he would say something like. I love you. I'm sorry. I was such a massive nit, and um, I, it's the big shoes. That's the problem. And uh, will you take me back? And we'd all go, "Oh, look!" He said, "He said, he said, will you take me back?" And and we've got closure, and it's fantastic. And look, I finished my popcorn. But yeah. Lost in Translation didn't do that. You saw them fairly close up, but also from afar, and you were just aware of these two people with lots of other people around them in Tokyo, and. You just saw that Bill Murray mouthed something to her, but you never found out what she, he actually said. And of course, the film ends, and you're going, "What did he say?" But yeah. it's the perfect ending. You you knew enough. You, it was enough. The story was complete um, without that going the extra extra mile. And so, just to hand the baton over to you, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about. Um, uh, show and tell, of course, uh, show don't tell is a famous piece of writing advice, and it's often um, it's often used as an example of um, of why some writing is uh, good or bad, and that's a really horrible way of putting it. I realise that, mm. but, but often people say bad writing. Well, you know, it's there's a lot of showing going on and not much telling. I've got that, I've got that the right way around, haven't I? Um, no, there's no? an awful lot of telling and not a lot of showing. Yes, that's right. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. I knew I got it yeah. wrong. Um, and I thought, yeah, that's, that's true, actually. This idea of just saying enough, that is actually, you know, it's kind of really tightly joined up with the idea of good and bad writing. And then yeah. I thought about you, Donna, because you're a good writer, you're a good poet. And, oh, come and on. I, <laughs> and I think poems, because they're so exposed, because they're so sparse, because you don't have hundreds of pages to fill stuff up and tell your stories... You know the the, the 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 words you the words you choose are really important, and the, you know any any mistake or any kind of loss of rhythm is really accentuated in a poem. Mm. And therefore, yeah. I wondered whether this this idea of just saying enough is is far more important in in poetry, perhaps because you're far more exposed as an author. I think it is, but I also think that maybe you can get away with a bit more in poetry, like I you know. Many poems have 
like a narrative. They have, you know, you know where the story of the poem is going when you're writing it. But because it's a poem, I think people will excuse it more if they don't understand exactly if, if there's something that they, they think might be a little bit mysterious or they're not sure, they, they think they've understood the meaning of it, but maybe not necessarily the reference. That's, that's the way I always saw it when I was writing poetry, that, you know, it's some poetry is going to be using a very personal situation or idea or feeling, something which, you know, only you can see in your head and you want to translate it to people. But how much do you need to actually tell them? It's, it's true, you just want the poem to show them and getting the balance between having them understand absolutely everything and and allowing readers to make their own inference, I think is one of the most difficult things in poetry. And I, I have a, there's a, a fabulous Irish poet called Celia Dufrenia and she, and her poetry collection, well, she's written lots of poetry collections, but one of them um, has a glossary at the back. And when I saw that, I was, I thought, wow, that's fantastic because I was able to, I actually did it maybe the opposite way around reading that collection because there was a few poems that I'd read which I loved but I went to the glossary and that's where she explained things from poems that she thought might be a little bit more obscure so I would just take like a reference there that sounded interesting and then I would go and read the poem after that and and I actually found that really really useful and I was thinking I'd love to 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 put a glossary into my next collection because people have had loads of questions about my poems you know that I'd love to to tell them about, you know, that actually this thing really happened, you know, and things like that. So, um, so yeah, I think it's, it's so important in poetry, but, but with books, I think, I think when it ha- when it's done well, you just don't even notice it, it happening, do you? No, that's true. There is, uh, I think that's absolutely the case. I think that, um, it, it, it almost feels obvious, doesn't it? Sometimes, that uh, you know that you shouldn't go overboard with you know you shouldn't just blurt everything out and and use lots of adjectives and and uh, all that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, even just if you say you know somebody shouted what they said instead of making the words that they say convey that you know, like actually telling people that they were angry. <laughs> This yeah. person, yeah, you know, Johnny was really angry. <laughs> yeah, well, there's the there's the Stuart Lee joke um, that he says about. Um, Oh, God, I can't remember it. I'll put the link in the show notes, but Stuart Lee, British comedian, fantastic British comedian, probably our best at the moment, or not at the moment, for the last 15 years. Um, anyway, he does this joke about uh, Dan Brown's uh, Da Vinci Code, and um, and it's not really a joke, it's kind of a, a, a kind of a whole sort of setup. And he refers to the, the line, and I don't even think it's a real line, but there are lots of lines like this in the Da Vinci Code, and it's... Uh, the famous man looked at the looked at the red cup or something like that. Um, I can't remember exactly. I apologise, but you know, it's, there's so much detail, unnecessary detail, with the uh, in in one line. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's why people think the Da Vinci Code isn't up to much in terms of the writing. I'll tell you who is up to much with the writing, and that's Ray Carver, one of my favourite writers, oh, yeah. writer of some of the greatest short stories in the English language. Um. He's the master of knowing how much to say and when to get out. A short story is kind of by definition all about that, really. That's kind of what it is. It's a snapshot of a, a character or a group of characters' lives. And um, and you, you know that's part of the deal with a short story, that you're only going to see them um, uh, uh, with, uh, within limited boundaries uh, in some way. 
um, you know, you only enter their lives for a few pages, and then and then you kind kind of quite often, especially with Carver. Uh, you you leave and you kind of don't always know what happens next. It's almost like you kind of open the curtain, have a quick look in at someone's life, see what's going on, and then you close the curtains and you never really find out what's going to happen. Ray Carver's short stories really feel like that, and it's it's it, it again it's the same principle. It's the idea of knowing what to leave out in order to keep people. It's not in, it's not really to keep people interested. It's not it's not about keeping readers interested. It's about making sure the characters don't become cliches and that they have they have the the fully formed characters it's almost acknowledging that in 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 any sort of work of literature you can only say much about say so much about uh, about um uh, any one character or or what they do i don't know but ray carver's stories are a really good example is it um that's really great because I've only read his poetry and I've never actually read any of his short stories which oh, is ridiculous i know i know i've crazy. got is it all of us is that what it's called the there's a great anthology or collection of his work. Uh, the the anthology is um, is I'm just looking up because I think I've got it in front of me. Oh no, I haven't got it in front of me. It's um, the complete works of Ray Carver. <laughs> That's not true. It's where I'm calling from, and I've, I have remembered that without without googling where I'm calling from. Okay, that's not the one I've got. Um, and he has various collections. His most famous uh, short story collection is uh, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love, which is just a beautiful title mm-hmm. for anything. Yeah, no, it is All of Us is the collected, is collected poems. That would oh, be why okay. I haven't read any of his short stories. So <laughs> yeah. I've got that one on my shelf, but not sh- any short stories. Okay. Um, well, but we'll and, all have to go and read some Carver. Definitely go and read some. Drink some Carver whilst reading some Carver. I recommend that. <laughs> Um, so foreshadowing, this was something uh, similar in in some way. I don't know how I kind of brought these two subjects together, but I just that's the way kind of my mind worked. Um, so I'm 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 doing some foreshadowing now, and I I kind of I almost don't really know if I'm doing it right. <laughs> I mean, I, I you know, I've read enough, and I, hopefully I'm relatively. Equipped enough to uh, to do it, but um, it's not something I've got a lot of experience with, and I'm wondering if I'm doing it too much and just how much you reveal. So I did a bit of uh, looking into foreshadowing. First of all, I found a definition of foreshadowing, which I thought was very useful. I shall read that for you now. Foreshadowing is a literary device in which a writer gives an advance hint of what is to come later in the story. It often appears at the beginning of a story or a chapter and helps the reader develop expectations about the coming events in the in a story. Um, which is kind of what I, kind of what I thought, um, and they've got some examples here. So um, I, I've always thought about it. I always thought about foreshadowing being where um, uh, a narrator kind of says something along the lines of um, uh, uh, Steve. Oh, you can't, who'd have thought that would have happened when Steve died? And then you go, Oh, Steve dies. Then does he later on? What's, what's, what's going to happen to Steve? And because you <laughs> want to know what happens to Steve, well, you know that he dies, but because of you want to know how he died, you want to read. A great example of this was The Book Thief uh, by Marcus Zusak, who um, who came second to me in the Commentary Inspiration Book Awards last oh, year. <laughs> you have been waiting for a chance to just slip that one in. Indeed. Yeah. He's going to be furious when he listens to this. <laughs> um, he has a... The, the death is a character, as in the big sort of capy cap with a scythe, capy chap with a scythe. Um 
he uh, he kind of starts Reaper, off. Reaper, I think you were looking for though. Yeah, well, he's but he's actually called Death in the book, but he, he does have more. No, than no, one I name. mean when you were going for the description, you were going the the, the chap in the cap with the with the scythe. I don't know. Why I said cap. I meant I meant cape. I forgot the. I entirely forgot the e, which isn't magic. Magic e. Indeed. Um, so <laughs> completely lost now. <laughs> so so he has the character Death, and he basically does that Death at the start of uh, at the start of uh, the book Thief. Um, he says, what is it he says? A small announcement about Rudy Steiner. He didn't deserve to die the way he did. <laughs> and so you go, all right, so he's going to die or she's going to die at that. Uh, he's going to die, sorry. He's going to die at some point in this novel. Yeah. Anyway, so that's not how I've always thought it worked. But actually, it's it's not always it's not always like that. And um, there are some really good examples uh, I found of uh, foreshadowing on a site called Novel Writing Help. Um, and sometimes it's... Um, um, Sometimes it's it's actually an event can happen and then it happens again later on and it's exactly the same type of event. Um, and and it's, so it's kind of a much more subtle way of foreshadowing. So the example uh, we've got here, um, actually, sorry, this is on literarydevices.net. Um, the example is uh, John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, where earlier in the novel, George kills Candy the dog uh, sorry, he kills. Sorry, Hang on, not spoiler true. alert. <laughs> well, <this laughs> you is, just but, say, but, I haven't read it yet. But this is this is. But that's what that's what foreshadowing is, which is why it's, it's effectively plot spoiling, isn't it? Anyway, George kills Candy's dog, not Candy the dog. Kills Candy's dog, which foreshadows Candy killing Lenny because Candy is identical to George and Lenny to the dog. Even the nature uh, of even. Uh, the, uh, uh, go on, carry on. Sorry, you finish first. Even the sorry. nature of the death of the dog was the same as Lenny's. Same as Lenny's, as both were shot in the back of the head. So it's kind of an event foreshadowing an, another event, which is going to happen to someone else later on in the book. Okay, but this is this is uh, like retrospective foreshadowing because you can't know that that's foreshadowing until the second event has happened. You've been foreshadowed and you didn't even know it. <laughs> Basically. Exactly. Exactly. That's yeah. that's kind of my point. There are more than one. There is more than one way to do this, and I hadn't really thought about it in that way. And I think about I think about imagery and 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 how um, um, you can you can use like metaphors and things like that at the start of a book. And you know, as the author, that later on, that all these metaphors are kind of giving dropping clues and leading readers to a final conclusion. And actually, in doing all that kind of that kind of subtle foreshadowing, what you're doing is creating an atmosphere and creating a, a kind of uh, a, a tension and conflict that, that that leads to the item or the event or the person that is being foreshadowed. And it's in a much more subtle way than the kind of the book thief kind of way. Mm. I like I like that because, yeah, I, when I was thinking about foreshadowing, I too was thinking it's actually quite difficult to imagine or to think of books these days that don't, blatantly foreshadow in terms of the fact that you know they 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 say something they take you from the back to the front <laughs> as it were of the story um i just i can't i really struggle to 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 think of stories that don't do that you know where you don't have a glimpse ahead yeah uh, no I, I absolutely and i think a lot of uh, I, I think a lot of uh, genre fiction probably uses that technique a lot more because there is that idea of kind of you know the idea of a page turning. What happens next? Oh God, I've got, I think Steve might die. <laughs> I need to keep writing. Oh no, Steve is going to die. You've just told me. How does he die? I need to keep reading. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and I hate I just, it when they say in books, "This was the last time they would ever see each other," or you know, and, and he wouldn't make it to the sea. That, that, <laughs> Cormac McCarthy does that quite a lot. Yeah. 
he would see the sea once more in his short life. Yes, exactly, yeah. But you, don't, you never actually find out. I'd rather not have that line personally. <laughs> yeah. uh, the way that I've been doing this, so the way that this is, I'm just going to, I'm going to read you a bit. This is an, this is a exclusive. This might probably won't end up in the final version, but um, one of the things I'm finding with foreshadowing, so to come back to you know, a piece of writing advice, in doing this, in using this te- technique for the first time, I am finding that actually it's, it's helping me structure my work and uh, uh, structure the chapters and the novel because in the act of actually having a character or the, a narrator say, um, this is going to happen, or in my case, you need to know about this, um, it it makes it, it kind of helps me think. Well, okay, well that is going to happen. So that's where I'm leading to, and it kind of gives you like a mental structure. So I'm actually building this into my notes and my my plan and all that kind of thing. So this is why I say what I'm about to read might not end up in the final novel because actually I've started foreshadowing quite a lot because I'm finding it's helping helping me keep momentum and keep things um, keep things flowing a little better. Um, so I don't know if that's how it's typically used, but I know that this is a first draft, so I can always go back and kind of think, actually, I've foreshadowed way too much. <laughs> Let's get rid of I can of totally things. understand that because, you know, the story on paper looks like such a linear thing, but what you're doing is you're, like, actually making it into kind of like a web. Yeah. So this is this is the, this is the end of this chapter. So I, hopefully you'll, you'll see uh, exactly that. We did not live in my grandma's house, but my grandma's house is very important. I mean, even that is foreshadowing, isn't it? I, I mm. didn't think it before I read it out, but um, the fact that I'm uh, talking directly to the reader, which is not... I mean, that's kind of what first-person narr- narrators do, but I'm explicitly doing it in this in, in, in this novel. I'm explicitly sort of imagining that the reader is kind of the third character. Um, the third character? It's like the, the th- fourth wall. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, anyway... We did not live in my grandma's house, but my grandma's house is very important. It's where I found her notebook in a box in a cupboard built into the wall behind the sofa. A secret cupboard, I still believe. There were three boxes in total. You really need to know about the boxes. And that's the end of the chapter. So, hopefully... Mm. Exactly, eh? Why? Why, Ian? Why do we need to know about them? Why do you need to know about them? What boxes? Uh, what, what, what? Were the cushions on the sofa? <laughs> yeah, cool. So yeah, so that's uh, this, this kind of a technique that I haven't really used so explicitly before, but I've found that in doing so, um, I'm 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 able to go in a certain direction and kind of keep on track, and and I'm finding it helpful as a as a as a device for me as a writer, not just as something that hopefully will, you know, that readers will like. Finally, because I think we haven't talked about it yet this episode, Breaking Bad. Foreshad- oh, yeah. Foreshadowing. Um, I'm on season. We're halfway through season four, and there isn't anywhere near as much foreshadowing as there was in, say, season two, when every single episode was foreshadowed with this. Basically, it was like this scene here that you're seeing for the first minutes of this program. That's where you're going to be in sixty minutes time. But I found that it wasn't even sixty minutes time. Sometimes you'd have to wait loads of episodes to get there. Are you with the spoiler alert? Um, the uh, the teddy bear's eye in the swimming pool floating around. That's the example that I I um, yeah that I'm using, and I and maybe that's and that that eye that eye is still knocking around actually. Nothing's really happened to it. No, uh, yeah, get ready. It's it's there for a long time. Yeah. Okay, we need to end this conversation right now. Do we? Before so that you... we don't give a spoiler away. Well, to me, I'm concerned. I'm not worried about. I'm else. not going to give a spoiler away. Don't worry. And anyway, 
I have moved way on from Breaking Bad. I've just finished True Detective, but we can talk about that another day. We've got that queued up, ready to go. Amazing. Yes, great. So um, so that all sounds good. Is there anything else you'd like to say about foreshadowing and showing, not telling? Um, I was going to talk about Life of Pi, how they gave us the two ambiguous endings. And Oh, it, don't, because I, I never forgave um, Jan Martel for that. Yeah, and he's, he, he's been ringing you as well, hasn't he? Well, I, I'm very upset about it. I never, I, I, it was one of those books where I just was like, you say what now at the end? Yeah, it was uh, for me. It was, um, it was a show. Don't tell gone wrong. It oh was, really? Oh, so you think so too? Yeah, no, I, I found it. I really annoyed the hell out of me when I read that for the when I, well, say for the first time. I've only read it once. I've also seen the film now. But yeah, it was effectively two endings. It was basically, if it, it was, um, I mean, it's a great book. I loved Are you it. Going to do another spoiler now? Uh, oh, I, th- I think Life of Pi is okay to spoil. I'm not going to go. I, I won't even spoil. But basically, it was like it, the whole story was: this is what happens. This is what happens. It's a bit implausible, but this is what happens. And then at the end, the last twenty pages, oh, everything you just said that wasn't true. It was all one giant metaphor. And so you're left thinking was it are you sure because i've just invested at least 40 hours of my time reading it and you're telling me that the 20 minutes it took me to read the last bit is the actual bit that i should have read and i remember like flipping back the pages frantically and thinking okay but really could that have been this and that have been that and like trying to like double check and second guess them and say no that it just it can't have been it must have been the original way it was and I think that's because you want to believe that that's... I mean, it's a, the problem I had with it, if I sort of be more objective, as a reader, I found it really frustrating. And I was like, oh, I can't believe you did that. I wasn't like, oh, I want to know what happens. I was like, oh, well, that was a bit of a waste of time. Yeah. Um, what I've got written down here about foreshadowing uh, is that I've written down in my notes, it can be a very writerly technique. So, mm. and, and, I, and I get, I, I don't really like those books where it's overly right we talked about this before so i don't like books where i feel like the language is complicated for the sake of being complicated i like quite plain language i like mm. to i like to be kept moving along no matter what i'm reading and that's not that's not uh you know it can go for for kind of you know hoity-toity literary fiction it can still be it can still be you know fast-paced and and have you know lots of flow and stuff in fact it should have those things but um but it can be quite a, a, a writerly technique to foreshadow. And, and I think Jan Martel's uh, kind of life of pie, that ending was like, a, that, to me, it was just the writer jumping out of a box going, ha, 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 look what I, look what I did. You idiots. <laughs> yeah. Of course, of course, of course it wasn't a real tiger. Yeah. Totes, I know, I'm with you. Oh, oh dear. Uh, so that's it, I think. That's it. That's it. We have we have talked the hind legs off our topics. We've talked the hind legs off our metaphorical tigers. <laughs> Indeed we have. Um I should just quickly mention that you can find me on Twitter at the Flying Poet. And you can find me on Twitter at Ian Broom, I A I N B R Double O M E, just to complete the full set of letters. <laughs> and um and you can find me on my website, Ianbroom.com. Slash blog is uh, if you want to kind of Read the blog, basically. Great. And SorensenPoetry.com's mine. Just to throw it in there. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, thanks, Ian. See you next week, eh? See you next week. <laughs>